Hello, my name is Lindsay Recknell, and this is the Hope Motivates Action podcast. Trish Bishop is this week's inspirational guest, and she is the real deal. You'll hear all about the question journey, Trish's passion project to encourage self-reflection and deep thinking in our lives. And she'll share how she drew on the power of hope when faced with her husband's near-death experience. Trish will also share her personal hope journey, where she used action to motivate further education and knowledge, virtually turning a potentially fatal health diagnosis into the healthy life she's living today. After the podcast, if you like what you hear and you're ready to take action in your life, please visit my website at expertinhope.com and let's chat further about how I can speak to you or your organization. My message and my work is all about using the science of hope to motivate action in your life. Because without action, hope is just a wish. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Hope Motivates Action podcast. I am Lindsay Recknell, and I would like to introduce you to my friend, Trish Bishop. Hey, Trish, thanks so much for being here today. I'm super excited to be here, Lindsay. Super excited. Trish and I met almost four years ago, and right from the minute that she and I connected, I found her to be such a fascinating person, and I can't wait for you to share your story with everyone, Trish. Absolutely. This is going to be so fun. (laughs) Let me read your official bio so people can get an understanding of who you are, and then we'll just get into it, okay? Perfect. So after being diagnosed with scleroderma, a rare form of rheumatoid arthritis in 1998, Trish refused all medications and began an incredible journey to reclaim her health and ultimately her life, facing her fear of death and walking a path to discover her truth. Trish is an IT professional, but her belief system is deeply steeped in natural health and energy healing. As a shaman, her passion is helping people to release the emotional traumas that are holding them back and stepping into their power. I love it. Totally. Oh, please (laughs) tell me more. What what does it even mean to be a shaman? That's a whole other show in and of itself. I'll kind of move back a second and go, why did I land there? How I landed there was on that journey. You know, I have to say that when I was diagnosed with scleroderma in the moment, I didn't know what it was. Have you heard of it? No, I've heard of arthritis, but that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. So I'd never heard of it. So had they said cancer, I probably would have been scared. They said scleroderma. I'd never heard the term before. Probably didn't know enough to be scared. But something deep, deep rooted inside of me said, do not go down that path. And I did not. So I refused all medications. You know, we can't treat you, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I had to take responsibility for my own health at that point in time. And that was kind of a a first hope moment. (laughs) Because not only did they diagnose me, but they said, you have seven years to live. So scleroderma is a condition that basically creates scar tissue on the major organs and until they cease to function. I'm super simplifying here. It can be way more complicated than that. And there can be a lot of other aspects of it. And there are different variations of it as well. But that's the super simplified version. So essentially, you know, there's just scar tissue that starts to create in the body. My face, they call it a stone face disease sometimes. So my face had started to get so that you couldn't see expression. There was tightness in my skin all the way up my arms to my shoulders, where I couldn't make a fist, things of that nature, right? So those are kind of the outward symptoms of, of the scleroderma. And I did. They said, you have seven years to live based on where you are now and the progression of the disease. 
So when I said no medications, they thought I was crazy. And you got to realize this was 1998. So the proliferation that we see today in terms of natural health or alternative medical options did not exist to that degree back then. So part of that hope was, holy crap, I hope (laughs) that there's an option here for me (laughs) besides the one that's being presented because it was intuitive. Like it was so deeply intuitive not to take those medications I didn't even have an option to, to deny my own body telling me don't do this, right? And I want to be clear, I'm not being an advocate for people to do what I did. I'm not saying don't take medications. <laughs> like, I want to be really clear about that, right? That was my, my choice in my moment and my, reali- in my reality, right? So in that journey from that point forward, food was a huge element of that. Yoga was a huge element of that. These all came to me out of my hope moment, <laughs> right? Like, I hope that I get to see my kids graduate school. I hope I get to see my kids married. I hope I get to have a life with my husband, you know, all of those. And there's that whole fear of death piece that you have to address, right? So the shaman thing came forward. So I've always been somebody that can work with energy. It's just an element of who I am. I'm an empath. I I sense other people's energies and other people's emotions and things of that nature. But the shaman thing came forward, just to go back to that question, Because for me, in my experience, in my journey, I came to believe that while I may have set myself up physically for disease, you know, through, you know, whether it was bad eating or whatever else it was, stress, for the most part. I mean, I was a PM working 18 hour days, like no question stress was a huge contributor to the manifestation of this disease. I also believe, and again, this is my belief, that how that disease manifests is a reflection of where you are spiritually. And for me... I had a very closed heart at that point in time in my life and going through this process of opening myself up to hope. And you do have to open yourself up to hope, right? Like it's a bit of a choice. (laughs) It's not just something that's just there. You have to choose it. So when you're sitting there and you're kind of in that moment of, wow, I have seven years to live, right? What choice are you going to make in that moment? And you can choose to live in the despair, or you can choose to live in continuing to do what you're doing, which is, you know, dying, or you can choose to do something different. So the shamanic journey for me was very much about learning a modality of how to heal myself. And that really was the root of it for me. Whoa. (laughs) There was so much in there that I want to talk about, that I want to ask questions about. Pick it apart. Go for it. Let's go. Let me start with intuition because you are someone who feels so deeply and so strongly and follows your intuition so closely. Has it always been that way? Yes. So for those of us that this doesn't come naturally, yes. can we be taught to be better listeners of our intuition? 100%. You absolutely can. And I will say, for those who are interested, the easiest way that I can give you to build that capability, because oftentimes what happens is it's conditioned out of us right? So we're in a mall as a small child and there's somebody who's being really difficult in a store and we kind of shy away from that and our parents are trying to get something done. So they're dragging us towards it instead of away from it, right? That's a conditioning moment where our parents are telling us, no, 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 ignore your intuition. That's telling you that this person is going to get violent and let's keep moving towards it. Let's keep moving towards that unsafe moment. Do you know what I'm saying? So there's so many moments day to day, and especially when we're in a busy life, right? As a parent, there's so many moments day to day where we are literally unconsciously, so it's not like our parents do it on purpose, oftentimes unconsciously 
conditioning intuition out of our children. So if you're in a position where you're like, wow, I would love to build that intuition capability, my recommendation to you would be think of your intuition as this person that you've just met and you want to build a super amazing BFF, long-term, deep trust, so much fun kind of relationship with them. And then treat your intuition like that and realize that that doesn't mean you do everything your intuition says to do. No different than you wouldn't do everything your friend says to do. But you honor the fact that they told you or you honor the advice that they gave you, whether or not you choose to act on it. And that honoring helps to continue to build the relationship. So it opens up that capacity to hear the messages. It's no different than somebody that's been cheated on, right? And you ask them after the fact, did you know they were cheating? Yeah. That's intuition. If you didn't literally catch them in the moment and you found out after the fact, you knew. Of course you knew because your intuition told you. You just didn't want to hear it. I love that analogy of sort of the practicality of being BFFs with your intuition and that you don't always have to listen the same way you take advice from your BFF, but you don't always follow that advice. Sure. I like that a lot. You also talked about open-mindedness kind of and being opening yourself to hope. I feel like that applies in all scenarios, right? That openness, non-judgmental, compassion part of life. It's a tricky one because hope is not an emotion. So if we look at emotion, the only emotion that is chosen is gratitude, right? All other emotions are reactionary. You have to choose gratitude, right? All other emotions come in as a result of a reaction to something that's happening, right? But when we talk about hope, hope isn't really an emotion. And I'm not an expert. This is my perception. My perception is that hope is not an emotion. My perception is that hope is a choice, right? It is a choice of which avenue am I going to take, right? So I'm sitting here in a moment and I'm told I have seven years to live and I have this disease I've never heard of before and I'm not even clued in enough to be scared. And I go, okay, well, what is my choice in this moment, right? Am I going to just wait to die? Or am I going to choose a different path, right? And the, the path I chose was, I have to believe that there is some other option here for me, right? If my intuition is telling me, and I do trust it implicitly, and you know that even in the business world, if I do trust my intuition implicitly, and it's telling me don't take those drugs, then I am trusting that 100%, which means that I have hope that something else will show up for me that will help to guide me in terms of what my next steps are or what my other option is, or my other path. And there's a huge component of ownership and responsibility in that too, right? If I'm saying no to the doctor and the doctor's going, then we refuse to treat you. And I go, and I'm on my own in this situation that I know nothing about. I have to then take responsibility for my health. And own the choice that you've now made. Correct. Yeah, totally. I am an expert in hope. That makes a ton of sense to me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, I'm trying to be an expert in hope. I have tons of things to learn still. Um, So I like your approach to choice and recognizing that truly everything is a choice and doing nothing is also a choice. And in that moment, you chose to do the next right thing, whatever that right thing was for you intuitively in that moment. Have you always lived your life that way? I feel like often people forget that we have a choice, even if the choice is to do nothing. Are you asking, have I always chosen hope? No. Have you always recognized that you have choice? Because we can get in that mindset that says, well, I don't have a choice. You know, Mm -hmm. um, I'm stuck in a rock and a hard place and 
there is no choice for me. And I, believe- I, I would say no, no, I did not. I did not always recognize I had choice. How did you get from there to here? I would say there's even moments now in my life, my experience and my journey that I forget that I have a choice, even though I know better, right? Even though I know better, you can get so caught up in the drama of this situation, whatever that happens to be, that you literally cannot see the choice. Normal situation is feeling like a one out of 10 and you're currently at a 10 out of 10 from, you know, an anxiety point of view or fear, just an overwhelming feeling. When you're at a 10, how do you get back to a one to recognize that you have a choice? Yeah. And and it is despair, Mm -hmm. right? At, At what, at what point in the slide towards despair, does something kick in? And for me, it is something does literally kick in and say, hello, Trish, (laughs) what are you doing? Right. And there's this element of, you know, you're sliding down, down a path here that, that is not going to get you to better. Right. So get a clue and pay attention to what's going on around you and take yourself out of this moment here. And I would say it's literally on that slide to despair where you're feeling such a weight in terms of whatever that experience is in the moment that it's, and it's so heavy it's hard to take that heaviness off. It's hard to take that jacket off when you're in it, right? It's a heavy friggin' jacket. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say that I, I'm evolved enough at any level that I'm always aware that I have a choice and what that choice might look like. I, wouldn't, I would not claim that. I'm not that evolved. But you recognize it and you can, you know, in some situations, be able to make that choice, which I think, I mean, what else can we hope for, right? (laughs) Progress, not perfection, so to speak. But it's a function of like, if we talk about depression, right? So I have suffered from depression. In my mind, in my logical mind, in the midst of that depression, I can say to myself, Trish, all you have to do is think a happy thought. And I can't remember one. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't have them. Because I do. Yeah, right. I have a bucket load of them, right? <laughs> yeah. But you know what I'm saying? So there is an element of, of a disconnect sometimes in, in some of these situations where the despair is so heavy that you just can't get out from under it to see the hope. What I'm saying is for me personally, that trip to hope is when I hit a certain level of despair where I go, whoa, 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 like this is feeling way too heavy. Like I'm not going to be able to crawl out from under this, right? So yeah. let's just stop the presses <laughs> and take a moment and even remember that hope exists. <laughs> let's take a moment and remember that hope exists, right? <laughs> what might hope look like in this moment, right? Totally. People will be in that despair. I've been in that despair, right? I've been in that depth and, and hope isn't present in that darkness, right? It, it is if I choose to see it but it's not present for me until I choose to see it. And again, it's a choice, right? Right, right. I like the imagery of hope in the darkness because I, I don't believe we ever, like, that our hope leaves us, like it goes away. I just feel like sometimes we can't see it. It's not bright enough in the darkness, so to speak. So that imagery of it kind of glowing or like one of my friends tells me it's when she gets close enough to the light at the end of the tunnel that she can make shadow puppets in the hope. Um, you know, it's, it's that, yeah. yeah, it's just that brightening out of the darkness, so to speak. You're certainly not in the depth of despair. And then you go, wow, hold on a minute. What's my hope option. You take the hope option. And then all of a sudden you're in a state of hope. Like that doesn't happen either. hundred percent. I totally get the shadow puppet thing because it's like, <laughs> you know, I would say it's akin to you're in a dark room. The lights on outside the room. You can just see it underneath the door. 
Yeah. Right. But you're in the far corner of the room and you're underneath a wool winter coat that weighs like 300 pounds. Right. So you see the light over there. You're tired. You're hungry. You're in despair. You're feeling like the world's coming to an end. You got to get that jacket off of you. And then you got to crawl over, right, before you can get to the light enough to be able to see, oh, wow, there's actually a doorknob. And then you got to open the door, right? So totally like that's it for me. That's it for me in those situations. How do you take off the damn jacket? How do you start there? It can be hard. Well, yeah. It can be really hard. It's heavy. I'll do it. (laughs) It's super heavy. It's my logical brain that helps me in those situations. I'll give you an example. So my husband had a massive massive heart attack. He was called a widow maker. So normally you don't live through it. And I become a widow. Thank God that didn't happen. But here's what happened. So he had this heart attack on the side of the road. I threw him out of the car. Like, so he was unconscious in convulsions. I literally threw him out of the car. I did not know he was having a heart attack. I just know he was passed out and going into these convulsions. So as I'm throwing him physically from the car, another car stops and, and gets out. And it is a STARS nurse, Get out. right? So, and I see STARS ICU nurse and her 18-year-old son who had just finished EMT training, okay? Whoa. So between the two of them, they keep him alive for 20 minutes. That kid, 18-year-old kid, did 500 chest compressions, they estimate, over that 20-minute period, right? I literally remember being on the phone with the 911 operator and she's like, can you give me an update? Can you give me an update? And the update is he's blue. His, you know, his eye, like, you know, he's not breathing, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I can't do this. I literally gave my phone to some stranger. <laughs> and so she could keep the 911 operator up to speed. Right. Right. So all of this is happening. And, and my husband's my best friend. Like he is my best friend in the world. Fast forward two weeks later, he has a stroke. Okay. Get out of here. I am not joking, two days into the hospital with his stroke where he literally lost his speech, could not speak, okay? Lost his speech. Physically, he's fine, but he cannot speak. So thankfully, he and I are super intuitive with each other. So I'm speaking on his behalf in many instances. And two days later, he ends up with a pulmonary embolism. All right? The doctors are telling me, I don't understand how he's alive. (laughs) He's had a widowmaker heart attack, a stroke, and the pulmonary embolism, any one of which should have killed him. And we get home and we have 13 more trips to emergency over the course of the next few months, right? So I'm living on the knife edge of fear 24 seven, right? Every time he breathes funny, I'm like going into this panic anxiety state, right? And so that's my 300 pound heavy coat as I'm laying in the corner, right? And so my logical mind, you know, going back to how do I take the coat off, right? My logical mind says, Trish, Here's the dealio. There is no way that your God, your angels, the universe, whatever you believe in, would have sent you an ICU nurse and this kid that had just finished his EMT training and successfully executed 500 chest compressions to save Paul's life only for him to die. Like the logical brain says there's no way, right? (laughs) Now, yes, there's an element of belief in there, right? But my logical brain says, wouldn't have happened, dude. (laughs) Like there's no way that he would have been saved there only to turn around and be dead in three weeks. That makes no sense. Like it's, there's no logic there. Right. Right. So my logical brain goes, I get it's heavy. I get, there's a lot here. I get you're on the knife edge of fear. So there's all of this that goes on, right? Unless you've lived through something like this, you cannot understand 
what it is to live through a situation like that. It's hell. It is hell. And it is that, you know, 1000 pound, nasty, heavy wool coat, a hundred percent it is. But the, the ability to take it off comes from that logical brain in my mind for me that says, dude, this wouldn't have happened. Like he would have died the first time if that's what was meant to happen. So get over yourself, get a grip. And it's time to take the coat off and crawl towards the door. <laughs> Find the <laughs> There's light over there, right? There's light over there. And, you know, surely if there's light, there wouldn't be a door if there wasn't a door handle, right? Logical brain again. Yeah. So just get to the door and the door handle will be there. Amazing. So self-talk, right? You clearly have conversations with yourself. So tell me about your self-talk. Like, is it positive? Is it negative? Is it both? How do you curate that? So I believe negative self-talk comes from the ego. Like the ego just wants the status quo. And so anything that's going to change the status quo, the ego is going to kibosh, which means that's, that's negative self-talk. Hmm. Any self-talk that happens that's positive, I believe is soul-based. That's spirit trying to communicate to me. And again, call it intuition, call it spirit, call it whatever you want. But that is an, an ability to communicate. So am I talking to myself? Yes. When I heard that message, was it me that said, Trish, get a grip? There's no way that, you know, Paul would have been kept alive with that ICU nurse if he was meant to die anyway. They would have just let him happen the first, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of message, it's not coming from me consciously, right? Because consciously I'm still on the floor under the heavy jacket, right? right. That, that's where I am in that moment. Again, back to the imagery of, you know, like you take these abstract kind of topics and you can articulate them in a way that my logical brain can understand because you play on both sides of the fence, so to speak. I do. I totally do. <laughs> we connected that way because I'm, I'm trying to be more open to the woo-woo. If you uh, <laughs> saw my blog post this week, I am trying to be more open-minded and non-judgmental about these things. But you and I connected on such an amazing level, you know, four years ago that it is that skill you have to bring the two of them together. And I know one of the things that we talked about way back then was your mm. book, The Question Journey. Yeah. Can we talk more about that? Totally. What, what do you want to know? Can you tell people first off what the question journey is all about? So this is this little crazy story behind the question journey. So I had no intention of writing a book. I was reading another book at the time. I believe it was by Joe Vitale, something about marketing. But anyway, he was talking about this woman who had written this book called Everything Men Know About Women. And I was like, oh, that should be interesting. So as I continue to read on, it turns out the entire book is empty. Yeah. And this woman has sold like millions in the world and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, so I burst out laughing. I think it's the funniest thing ever. And as I'm laughing, all of a sudden, this whole concept for the question journey book just starts downloading into my brain. Like literally over the next 24 hours, even in the middle of the night, I'm like putting sticky notes. I'm writing and sticky notes in the dark and chucking them up on the wall. So the whole thing, the whole concept behind it, everything was totally downloaded in 24 hours. It was not my idea. This was coming from somebody else, right? So, or something else, whatever. So it was all just being downloaded into my brain. What I got from it was, is that we are in a space in people's personal journeys where there's become a bit of a dependency on looking to others for our answers, right? So, you know, going to self-help meetings, conferences, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Looking for those gurus, looking for those people who can give us our answers. And the message that I received in that process was nobody has our answers but us, right? So no different than, for example, your definition of integrity and my definition of integrity may not be the same. Mm -hmm. Does it mean we're not operating in integrity? No, you're operating in your integrity and I'm operating in mine. 
right? So does that make yours right and mine wrong? No, 100%. How would we expect that somebody else would have our answers? So the big message around it was that other people do not have our answers. And if you look at the top gurus in the world, they're saying the same thing. Don't look to me for your answers. <laughs> like you have your answers. I will ask you the right questions to help you to get there. But don't look to me for your answers because I'm not going to give it to you. Right. So the best gurus are the ones who are not going to give you the answers. They're going to give you questions. Right. So the next thing that I kind of downloaded around this whole thing was it had to be super collaborative. So the book itself is a bit of a workbook. So you can write on the pages, you can doodle, whatever, a lot of really beautiful art. So there was a lot of artists, mostly from Vancouver Island, because that's where I was living at the time, whose art is represented in the book. It had to be black and white. So even though some of this art in its original form is beautiful in color, the book itself had to be black and white because color can impact people's perceptions, right? Mm. So how people might interpret one of the questions on the page may be affected by the color that is represented. So it had to be black and white. And again, that collaborative piece. So not only did people contribute art to the book, but they also contributed questions. So oftentimes you would see a reference to a question. This question was submitted by whoever, right? So we did ask around various people to say, hey, what question might you ask? At the end of the day, the questions are those that we want to avoid because oftentimes just the reading of the question may mean that we have to change something. Like the acknowledgement of the question may result in us having to change. I've seen people pick up this book because it didn't come from me. It came through me, but it didn't come from me. I have no attachment to it. So I can just watch people's reactions and it's phenomenal. So some people will pick it up and they literally will open it up to, a, to one of the questions just randomly and they will start crying. <laughs> or they will drop the book like it's on fire and it's the devil incarnate. The reactions are like all over the map. So it's really, really interesting to not be emotionally attached to it and to be able to see this reaction that people have to it. But if you take a question like, are you comfortable being alone, right? And if people just sit with that question, a lot of people create what I call noise to avoid, right? Mm -hmm. Which is just constant chaos in their lives so that they can avoid being quiet and alone. They don't want to be alone. They don't want to be quiet because in the quiet is where things start to come up. Things start to, you know, come forward that you kept pushed down for long periods of time. A lot of people try to avoid that. So they just create constant chaos, so it never, ever emerges. Fascinating. You're right. We don't want to ask those tough questions because we don't truly want to have the answers because if we have the answers, we might have to change. And if we have to change, that means we have to make a decision. And what if it's the wrong decision? And let's even look back to earlier in the conversation. So what's going to happen when we want to change? Well, guess what? The ego doesn't want us to change. Totally. So what are we going to hear? Nothing but negative self-talk. Oh, full circle, baby. Full circle. So good. Well, I have the question journey book. Mm, please don't ask me if I've done anything with the question journey book. <laughs> <laughs> That's way too scary for me. But now I in my new open-minded, you know, approach to life, perhaps I should pick up the question journey book again. <laughs> Oh, that's fun. You're funny. <laughs> uh, all right. I have one more question for you that I have been asking all of my podcast guests. I would like to know what gives you hope? You know what? I was watching that show. What would you do? And it basically puts people in difficult situations. They have actors that create this situation and then they're in like a milkshake shop for example. And so the, the actress is the person making the milkshakes and they have an actor who's pretending that he can't read. And so he's asking her to help him to understand what milkshake options he has. And she's basically like, what do you mean? You know, and, and when it comes down to the fact he can't read, she goes, how can you not read? You're an adult in 2019. <laughs> 
Okay. So these are actors. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. And there's normal people like you and I walking into this shop, watching this go down. Right. Right. And so the whole show is what would you do in that situation? And so when I see how people reacted in that moment and the number of people that reacted in the positive versus in the, oh, I'm just going to ignore this. Like it's not happening. That gives me hope. When I see humanity stepping up for other people and stepping up for what's right, that gives me hope. I like that. It's like when Brene Brown says, you know, stand in the wilderness, right? Take the chance, take the risk to stand out here where no one else is. And when you help that guy better to read or, or, you know, go against the grain or take a different political view than other people, it's that hope for, yeah, hope for humanity and the courage of that. Trish, this has been so wonderful. I just so appreciate you sharing your thoughts with us and your approach to life is, it's magical. It's, it's unique and practical and a really great cross-reference of, of all the best parts of us. And so I really, I really appreciate your insights and sharing them with us today. Well, and you know what I have to say, Lindsay, I could not be happier with the way that you glow in the world that you're stepping into your power in this space. Like what a gift for the rest of us. I love it. So happy to be a part of your journey. You're so good for my ego. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you. (laughs) Thank you. I really appreciate it. I think, I think we're doing good work and yeah, I'm clearly passionate about it. So thank you for your time and sharing your story. And I look forward to connecting with you again very soon. Thanks so much for listening to the Hope Motivates Action podcast. Be sure to tune in every week as I interview more inspiring people who have used the power of hope to motivate action in their own lives. If you love this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. My ultimate goal is to travel the world spreading hope. So if you'd like me to speak to your group or organization, just get in touch. Love for you to visit my website at expertinhope.com and follow me on social media. I have Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks again for your support. And remember, hope without action is just a wish.